Welcome to episode 19 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Purcell and Vivaldi. Hello. Hello. My name's Chris Bland. And my name's Kelly Harlock. You're listening to episode 19 of That Classical Podcast. Amazing. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to another stonkingly good episode. It's going to be a corker. Yeah, it is. So we've noticed that we've got some Baroque fans out there. We did an episode, yeah, was it number 16 on Baroque? Yeah, about the horrible, disgusting, misshapen pearl. That is music. Baroque yeah, music. Um, so we're like, well, let's give the people what they want. We're going to do a two-composer <laughs> episode today about Purcell and Vivaldi. I'm really excited. I'm really excited, too. Excellent. It's going to be great. Great. So I'm going to kick off with a bit of Henny P, as Hen- no one calls him. Henry, Henry Purcell. <laughs> I love how I'm rubbing off on you. This is great. Henny Puzzy. Henny Puzzy. Um, and as you know, listeners, dear listeners, when we talk about a composer's life, we condense it into 60 of Her Majesty's English <laughs> seconds. Good old-fashioned um, seconds. And we like to call it the 60-second show. It's the, the 65 now. Great. Okay, right. I'm just going to time you. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Maybe, but also maybe not. We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Mixture of emotions. Okay. Three, oh. two, oh. one, go. Henry Purcell, born 1659, died 1695. Um, one of the only really great English Baroque composers, known for being number one at the time. Woo! Uh, he was born in Westminster. He'd spend pretty much his whole life around there. Um, he was a chorister, then his voice broke. Uh, he learned about fixing organs. He liked organs. Uh, started composing at nine-year-olds. Nine years old already, but uh, maybe 11. It's really hard to get exact dates, you guys. Historians are trying so hard. Um, he started working at Westminster Abbey during uh, and after he left school. He was at Westminster School, told you he loved Westminster. Uh, 1679, he's only 20 years old at this point. His teacher, John Blow, vacates the position of organist at Westminster Abbey. Henry gets a job. Oh, uh, he's been composing anthems, theatrical stuff, um, turns away from secular to sacred music for a while, but still churns out loads of like music for plays. Um, um, 1682, organist of the Chapel Royal, only 23 still, so he writes lots of stuff for the royal family. Um, then he writes operas uh, like Dido and Aeneas, 1689, uh, first English opera, popular but not widely performed at the time. Um, 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 10 he, seconds. Oh god, he died 1695, age 36, maybe of chocolate poisoning, maybe tuberculosis, maybe his wife left him outside. Five History seconds. is really difficult, the end. <sighs> um, wait. Did you say chocolate poisoning? Maybe. Uh, right, so <laughs> the thing I've encountered while researching um, Henny B, <laughs> yeah. Mr. Purcell, is that, like, we don't know so much of what happened. Like, so many of the dates are fuzzy. So we're not really sure exactly when he was born, uh, like, which day of the year he was born I mean, or died on. I mean, was it that on. long ago? Was it? Surely we've got... 1600s. It was like 1660-something. <laughs> oh, by the way, that was 57 seconds. You'll be glad to know. Sorry, I forgot to tell you. Oh, God, you, you were was, pressuring me so I much. Really, I felt I had to stop. So um, okay, I've interesting. I've got more. So, <laughs> I had to cut out so tell, much. Uh, tell me, tell me, please. But first of all, the chocolate thing. Right, so he died super young. He died when he was 36. Um, oh, crikey, yeah, yeah. And... You guys, the historians, they're trying so hard, but history's really difficult. I'm okay? hard enough. <laughs> so he maybe died of tuberculosis. He maybe died of chocolate poisoning. He maybe died when his wife locked him out of the house. You're not telling me how with the chocolate. Was it off milk? Or was I, it I'm not sure. like Just a Hershey's kiss? You know? <laughs> oh, I hate Hershey's. Disgusting. The worst chocolate. Sorry, sorry, Americans. Off track. I'm, yeah, I'm not really sure because like, there's no real evidence or okay. info about it. I mean, if anyone knows... Tweet us. Yeah, let us know. Um, great. Anything else? Any other um, Yeah, so he, after he died, super young, he was buried in Westminster Abbey. So as I said, he was the organist there, oh, had a really long connection cool. with it. And because he was so loved and respected by everyone there, he was buried uh, right next to the organ. And that's where he still remains <laughs> to this day. Crikey, that's a bit disturbing. Um, wow. For no expense. And they were just like, yeah. 
Have, loving have life. a little seat over loving here. Loving death. There you go. We're going to crack right on. Uh, the first piece I'm going to talk about, he wrote in 1695, the very year of his death. So we've got the date for that one, have we? We do. Well, we know the years, but we don't know like the dates really <laughs> that well. Let's see how it is. Yep. It's all a bit vague. Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned, he wrote lots of incidental music to plays and operas. So opera back then wasn't what we think of as opera now. So now it's sung through, singers sing all the words, all the action happens mm-hmm. in the music. Mm-hmm. Back then it was more sort of plays with incidental music alongside it. Like a musical. Yes, except <laughs> quite often the music was sort of <laughs> metaphorical, allegorical, didn't really relate to the content of the play that much. Um, um. It's fine. Uh, it was just sort of like, they didn't I, have curtains coming up and down in between acts. It's just like, time for some so music. So what, they'd be talking about, like, I love you, I love you, and then they'd sing a song about a chair? Like, what's happening? No, well, like, it was we... atmospheric and allegorical. <laughs> okay, great. So anyway, the piece we're going to listen to now was written for a play called Abdelaza, or The Moor's Revenge, which wow. was written by Afra Ben, who is uh, one of our sort of great playwrights, okay. um, female playwrights. Passion for in... lasers. <laughs> oh, female playwrights! Indeed, yeah. Yes! <laughs> Ladies! Great. Yeah. So it's like a classic revenge play like Titus Andronicus. Doesn't yeah. make much sense. Everyone just gets across <laughs> each other and stabs classic. each other a lot. Google it. Let's have a listen now. See if you can recognise the tune and then we'll talk about it some more. That sound familiar? Oh my gosh. What a banger. What a tune. Um, it does sound familiar. Yeah, so that's the tune that um, Benjamin Britten, who's an early 20th century British composer, used in his Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, which is where they, it, he called it also like variations and fugue on a theme of Purcell. He right, didn't, nice. didn't just like plagiarise him, he gave him credit. It's okay. Did really? Okay, great. <laughs> which is a piece that is... Uh, funnily enough, a young person's guide to the orchestra. I've actually never listened to this. Oh, have you not? Yeah, so it's, no, the, it's no. that theme basically gets passed around all the instruments of the orchestra, and like he does fun and interesting stuff around it. But that's played by all the instruments. Um, I think I have heard little smatterings mm, of mm. that. Is it worth looking at? Looking out for? Yeah, it is. It's it's quite often played in like sort of educational concerts, like where they play the carnival, the animals, and Peter and the Wolf, and this. Sick. It's sort of it's often paired with those kind of guys. So what is it like? This is the violin. Ba, 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 yeah, ba, 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 ba. great. Oh well, then we'll definitely. Well, I'll put it on the Spotify playlist as well if it's there. Perfect. Great. One thing that I think is quite um, cool about this is that it sounds very stately and very grand. Yes. And I don't know whether it's just because I've read that, like, of course, Purcell was this very important English composer and was the only one. But it sounds very English. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Well, so, like, the Queen would, like, walk into a room. Well, sort of. It's because lots of Baroque music is Italian or German. And he was the only sort of major English Baroque composer. Uh, and it, it sounds somehow qualitatively I guess, different. You know what? It sounds um, firmer and kind of more solid to me than yeah. the kind of twiddly stuff that I'm used to in the yeah. Baroque circle. This is the kind of in-depth musicological yeah. analysis they come to that classical <laughs> podcast for. Fewer twiddles. I kind of see what you mean. It is different. It's from a different part of the world. And I guess it was... A bit earlier than some of the... Slightly earlier than, say, like, Vivaldi. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything really to back that up. It's just when I was listening to it while researching the episode, I was just like, I can't shake the feeling that it feels super English somehow. No, I'm with you. I get you. Can't explain it, though. Great. Abdelazer. 
that classical podcast. So as I mentioned before, Purcell wrote a lot of stuff for plays, um, as well as doing all his anthems and songs and uh, sacred music, rather. Beautiful. The next one is uh, music he wrote for a play called The Fairy Queen, which is basically a retelling of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, Delightful. It's very delightful. Oh, my days. So this is not an opera, but what's sometimes called a semi-opera or a mask? A smopra. Smopra. Mm -hmm. Sure, why not? (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Very similar to how he wrote incidental music for other plays. This is tunes in between the action that sort of reflect on the action, but aren't necessarily totally related to it. Great. So as opposed to what we've talked about before with like um, symphonic poems or like things like that, it's not that. Yeah, it's not that. It's an actual play with actual words. So it's not telling the story of the play. No, it's... Great. Dotted around the play, decorating it. I'll take it. So the text of the play is rewritten Shakespeare, but some of it in more sort of contemporary speech pattern. I say contemporary for the time, (laughs) for late uh, 17th century, uh, with Henny P just dripping some extra music Mm -hmm. all over it. Uh, We actually lost this score for ages after Henry died. It was only really rediscovered in 1901. It was written uh, 1692, so three years before his death. Bloody and it just sort of... You know what? People didn't really give a crap about Henry, did they? They just don't know anything about him. Well, it's because in the early 1900s, there was this uh, Baroque revival, basically. People started to get um... excited and interested in Baroque music again, and specifically in countertenor music. So what we're about to listen okay. to is... Uh, I wouldn't really describe it as an aria. It's just a, a piece from, a the, from the play. Mm-hmm. A little A little bit of a song. Little ditty. So let's have a listen. That is so my jam. It's like (laughs) apricot jam. It's amazing. Oh, I just love... So just to give a quick explanation, countertenor is a male voice, but singing that really high register. So they're singing in their falsetto range. Black Adder! It reminds me of every single time. Yeah. Um, Rather than their chest voice, which is down here. Black Adder. Black Adder. Black Adder. Stop showing off. So this countertenor voice really came into vogue in around the mid-17th century. Into vogue, yeah. Uh, Purcell particularly loved it, so he's written so much stuff yes. for countertenor. Yes, he has, yeah. Um, so lots of his semi-operas, smopperas, smopperas. have countertenor arias like <laughs> this. Right. So yeah. guys singing the falsetto. And so the the difference to like a mezzo-soprano or an alto is that it's got it's, it's a different timbre to it. It's sort of like very rich, light. full, well, I, I kind but of, also quite light. I feel like it's purer. It, it's purer yeah, and, yeah. and sort of more hollow. I know that sounds bizarre, but it's different. It's so <laughs> it's, different. It's difficult to like pin yeah, down exactly, but yeah. it's definitely really different. But then the interest in countertenors started to wane in sort of the 18th century because people discovered that uh, if you take a boy soprano and um, <gasps> no. snippy snippy... 
cut off his genitalia. Castrati. Castrati. No. <laughs> oh, those poor boys. So they discovered if you cut off a, a, a boy's <laughs> equipment, it keeps his. It means his voice doesn't break, and he keeps that really high, pure sound. God. But he grows into like a man's body, so has all the like power and projection of an adult male singer, Crikey. but with that really high voice part yeah, still it's definitely worth it uh, t- totally worth <laughs> it so yeah in england and throughout europe people start to not really care about countertenor as much however <laughs> um after a while people are like oh m- maybe we shouldn't be doing this to people maybe it's not okay <laughs> maybe it's to not in any way bits. in any way ethical so by the time of this baroque revival in the early 1900s people are like Oh yeah. Oh, we can't. We can't do that anymore. <laughs> so then, oh a, a corresponding reinterest oh, in countertenor singers okay. came back up. Makes then. sense. Yeah, yeah. They were like, "Oh, hey, countertenors, look at all this music that you can <laughs> sing now." And you can have <laughs> children as well. That's great. Exactly. So that's just a little insight into the rise and fall and rise again of countertenors. Um, and also, while I was looking into this this play, yet more history silliness oh about God. we just like, oh God. who knows what Purcell did. Tell so me. I'm assuming you know the story of Midsummer Night's Dream. So the two main characters are Titania and Oberon, who are the fairy king and queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw a little quote being like, a letter describing the original performances shows that these two parts were played by eight or nine-year-olds. Presumably other fairies were also played by children. What? This affects our perspective on the staging. No one knows what's going on with anything Why ever. Why are two adults that are like in a gross love triangle portrayed by a night... Okay, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. I'm done. I'm out. Peace. Um, That's all we need okay. to know about the fairy queen encounter tennis. <laughs> um, for further <laughs> personal listening, yeah. uh, what I would really recommend is so his, his songs particularly... Yes have really captured the imagination of lots of people. So oh, they've been covered by lots of pop stars, weirdly. So like what? Jeff Buckley, Alison Moyet, Sting. You are totally right. Yes, I've heard a Jeff Buckley version of maybe music of, for a of, while or something. Also, When I Am Laid. So in our yeah. opera episode, way back when, uh, we mentioned this track, uh, When I Am Laid, from oh the op- semi-opera Dido and Aeneas, yeah. which I'm so cross I couldn't do again here because we already covered it in Go the podcast. Go back to our opera episode. It's great. Um, but yeah, so you should listen to When I Am Laid. What else you were mentioning? Um... So Purcell, right. So um, my, <laughs> right. my, I'm on it. My favourite things are his songs as well. The mm. ones that I sang and growing up. Um, so things like Sweeter Than Roses mm. um, and Music For A While. And I Ooh. have to say Music For A While is just one of my favourite classical songs in the world. And if you want to hear an amazing countertenor, go for it. Quite an old one. Look up Alfred Della. Uh, on YouTube, I'll put I'll put the video on our Twitter yeah. as well. But it's it's insane. It's, just the most incredible voice. It's yeah, amazing. But also, yeah, just go go and explore and, and let us know what you find. Right, absolutely. Henry Purcell, done. The classical podcast. And now it's time for Vivaldi. And that means it's time for another. Also, um, before we start, I think it's worth saying that when Chris and I created that classical podcast in our first meeting i said chris i really want to do a vivaldi joke in the first episode um <laughs> this is another joke I that's say, older than the and whole it's not, podcast it's gonna be terrible now but i wanted to say welcome to that classical podcast <laughs> the show which puts the vivaldi in what am i gonna do vivaldi's philly cheese steaks that's literally it's such a bad joke <laughs> but it's it. made us laugh that for about a it. year and a half and, now uh, and now it's my time and that's all i wanted <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. So, let's move on with our lives. <laughs> End me. Right, so uh, let's let's do a little 60 seconds, shall we? <gasps> I'm so ready. Are you ready? Nope. <laughs> Never. It doesn't matter. It's happening anyway. Never again. Okay. okay. You ready? Okay, it's happening. Three, 
two, one. Go. Antonio Lucci Vivaldi was born in March 1678 in Venice, one of eight siblings. His dad taught him to play violin, but he never really mastered wind instruments because of his asthma. At 15, he began studying to become a priest and was even ordained in 1703. He was known as the Red Priest because he was a ginge, but should have been known as the Crap Priest because his asthma stopped him delivering mass. And he was like, okay, no. At 25, he became the master of violin at La Pieta, an orphanage and music school in Venice. Vivaldi wrote concertos, cantatas, sacred vocal music, and loads of stuff for the orphans there. But the board of directors thought he was a bit of a knob and almost fired him basically every year. But somehow he stayed on and became the musical director of the institution in 1716. Started writing opera about 94 during his career, and first people hate them and then they love them. In 1717, Vivaldi became the maestro of the Capella for the governor of Mantua. He moved there for three years, produced several operas. 1722, moved to Rome and produced operas there. 1725, returned to Venice where he produced more operas in the same year. <laughs> 1721, wrote for the Four Seasons. Huge success. Met aspiring young singer Anna Tessiero Giro became his favourite prima donna and also were they banging. Uh, wrote stuff for Louis XV's marriage and Emperor Charles VI of uh, Vienna. But And then he was like, I'm going to move to Vienna because uh, no one likes me Ten here. Seconds. Sold all his manuscripts for 50p and then moved to Vienna. But then uh, Charles VI died and he was like, oh no. And then he became super poor and died age 63 and 74 to one of an infection. Oh, 58 seconds, you're rogue. fine. I went rogue in the middle, uh, went off the script there. Um, but yeah. Um, okay, so he, it sounds like he had a lot of up and... Like, he kept on nearly getting fired. And it sounds like lots of people didn't really like him. <laughs> you know what? Um, he is a bit of a... Okay, so first of all, like he's a total Baroque legend, and I, I kind of see that, and he's sure, a string sure. legend. But he's a bit of an idiot. So you know how, so you know how I said... So he, he got ordained as a priest, right? Yeah. And then he was like, oh... My my asthma. He apparently totally fibbed about his asthma. And as when he was a priest, when he'd be like at the altar, he'd be like, "Uh, "I've got the black." Oh no! And then he'd leave in the middle of a service and go and write a song in the corner. What a joker! Um, But um, yeah, and I guess another thing to mention, which I found quite um, amusing, was so um, I mentioned he became the kind of. Uh, head of music at this orphanage, right? Yeah. Because at that time in Venice, these orphanages for girls were like the finest conservatoires in the country. Yes, I've heard of this. And yeah. and um and so they were like the place to be trained, but you had to be an orphan. Uh, and uh, so the, the one where Vivaldi worked was really opulent and luxurious wow. because all of its like orphan girls were the illegitimate daughters of Venice's <gasps> noblemen, and so these noblemen dads were like. I can't give you my name, but take this fancy ass chair <laughs> instead. Right. So it's and like, so, be, so you're not an actual child, but I don't want like, you to have a bad life. Here's a so. nice cushion. Enjoy. That's so interesting. So the context of which I've heard of that is yeah. that a disproportionate amount of his choral writing is for all female choirs. Right. But so That's like I why. knew I knew it was something like that. He worked some sort of school. I didn't realise yeah. it was for illegitimate Honey daughter. Because basically they were paying him to come up with like a concerto a week or like oratorios and things like no that at, at the orphanages, which is quite cool. And yeah, basically he's just a bit of a legend. And it's worth saying he wrote... Apparently, please tell me if this is accurate, more than 500 concertos. That feels like a lot. It feels like a lot too, but I trust the internet sometimes. Um, <laughs> but what I would say is, it's it's obvious, the minute you start researching Vivaldi, a ton of his concertos are for string, right? Mm. For violin mm. or cello or whatever. Mm. They're all absolutely amazing. But what I will say is, you've got to understand that at this time, the violin was like the nuts, like it was the hot instrument to have um, especially in Venice because of the proximity to Cremona and people like Stradivari and also Amati who were so around there were lots of violins floating around at the time basically well there were lots of the best violins that have ever been made uh, sure, like sure. to this day um, and also um, Vivaldi was just an amazing violinist he was a virtuoso violinist himself mm. so I think just a lot of his stuff is for string nice so we're gonna do the four seasons the hotel le quattro stagioni or the pizza right <laughs> But it's a, mu- Many, it's a musical pizza. Not a hotel or a pizza, oh, but music. Great. Um, so uh, I reckon 
even if you're a proper hello I hate classical music person you probably know what this piece of music is um, I mean it's everywhere perhaps yeah. unknowingly you've heard it like on The Apprentice or in a shopping centre like on a plane or um, in the Simpsons Hit and Run video game for the PlayStation 2 niche there was one bit I think it was like the stone stone cutters like head base oh, yeah. you drive through it with Homer and that's playing in the background tweet us if you know what he's talking about <laughs> um, so this is I mean what a piece of music am I right yeah. right so it's a group of four violin concerti which so again Vivaldi concertos Violins. on it um, so with each one kind of illustrating a season of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was written about 1721, 1723. And honestly, I think you're going to know it. I'm going to do a little uh, little performance here for you. Oh, God. Okay. What? Spring is this one. Decca Records. We're available. And then autumn is... Right? So, like, honestly, I bet you've heard all of them. But the one we're going to hear today is winter. And and quickly, before we go on to that. So, actually, there's a group of poems that accompanies um, this concerto. Basically, we don't know whether Vivaldi actually wrote them himself. But the kind of gist is, so, for spring, it's like, hey, check it out. Spring dogs. Uh, hashtag birds and streams. Can't even with all these bagpipes and nymphs. Uh, summer is like singing and dancing, everyone getting smashed. Autumn is like hunters with their dogs getting colder. And then it's time for winter. So this is the one we're going to play. And it's called L'Inverno, right? Which is Italian Which is for winter. Italian yeah. for winter. Uh, and the story of this poem is pretty short and sweet. Uh, it's pretty much, it's icy. We're all falling over. Ice is cracking. Leg it. Winter is cold and harsh. But still fun. Really, it was just like, oh, oh, we're all falling we're down. Like, yeah, and then like danger. Let's, but let's, it's all hilarious. Let's write some music uh, about so this. So within each season, we have three movements and they go fast, slow, fast, as is the kind of Usual norm. concerto form, yeah. So let's listen to the Allegro of L'Inverno. Which is the fast uh, one. Which is the first yeah. one. And you're going to love it. I think you can really tell the virtuosity of Vivaldi oh in that sort my of days. so fiddly. I, do you know what I love about Vivaldi, and it's really prevalent in all of his concertos for strings, is the attack. It's like, oh, yeah. it's like really aggressive, and I absolutely love that. <laughs> what I would say is, don't try and hum that at your desk at work. Because I tried and I looked absolutely mental. <laughs> no, just don't do it. Um, but so I hope you enjoyed that. It's amazing. And also worth saying, a really awesome, very cool composer, modern dude man called Max Richter wrote a cut few years ago, uh, a kind of reworking of the four seasons. Um, he's famous. He's, he's done a lot of soundtracks for films and he did the Blue Notebooks, which is a lovely um, little collection of pieces. Uh, but basically... It's amazing. He's played with like the time signatures and the notes and the structure. And um, sometimes it's really subtle and you can barely, you can barely even notice a difference. Yeah. But he's basically brought it into the modern age. Into the um, And that is so, so worth a listen. It's, it's really cool. Even cooler than Vivaldi's own version. I know that's really <laughs> oh, difficult to, wow, to imagine. Bless but me. I'll also put that on the Spotify playlist of ours. Thanks. And um, yeah.
That classical podcast is coming. Next! Hi. Next up, we've got some opera. Ooh. It's time for that. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about L'Olympiade. Okay, I don't know that um, at all, actually. Yeah, to be honest, I don't think many people do. Um, <laughs> but it's basically, look, I know you get it, but I'm going to say it again. Vivaldi wrote loads of string concertos, okay? Okay, right, and, and got it. that's what we remember him for, like, now. Mm. But back in the day, he considered himself, like, an opera man. Handy P opera man. Oh, uh, so the concertos just to pay the bills. Yeah, I, I maybe, yeah, yeah, I think so. And so I thought I'd just, I'd give an example. Sure. And um, because he said he composed 94 operas, okay? So far, we've only found 50. <laughs> so I feel like he might have been lying on his CV there. telling some porcupines. Yeah, I can definitely ride a horse. <laughs> I'm a great priest. <laughs> no, <laughs> you weren't. Um, but basically, yeah, we're going to talk about L'Olympiad, which is one of his better known operas it's it's one of his most popular ones now and back then i think as well it premiered in 1734 and as is as is always the way with an opera it's a little bit of a convoluted story but let me cool let me i suggest you google it immediately (laughs) but let me try and break it down take me through it so as as always we've got a love triangle and we've got the olympic games it's a great combo um so there's a guy and he's disguised as his mate and then there's this woman that his mate fancies and she's promised to the winner of the olympic games okay so he's disguised as his mate and falls in love with her and then his mate turns up and is like what are you doing and then his mate's fiance turns uh, up and she's like what are you doing please go and go I, I did I not follow not, that i've lost at all. myself I'm totally um, lost. but basically we're going to go and listen to an aria from it yeah. called Siam navi alonde argenti, which means we are like ships on the silver waves. And uh, the, the idea behind it is like, love is the greatest folly of all. So the lyrics are like, <laughs> we're like ships on the silver waves. We're drifting out of control. The dangerous wind is all the people we fancy. And Sounds the horrible dramatic. rocks are like, all our like earthly pleasures and stuff. Oh, wow. So this song comes in the second act and actually was written for our favourite Castrati. Snippy snip, Castrato. Castrato. One Castrato, like many Castrati. a panino, castrati. not a panini. One spaghetto. Um, one spaghetto. And yeah, so it was a character called Aminta who is kind of despairing of everyone else's whole tragic love triangle. She's like, I'm fed up with this. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, God, love is like a silver wave ocean or whatever. Um, <laughs> let's just listen to it. Here we okay, go. Okay, Kelly, my dear friend, can I level with you? Dear friend. Not really my cup of tea. Can I level with you? Yeah. Not really my cup of tea either. Why did you pick it then? <gasps> because <laughs> I wanted to show, I genuinely, to be, <laughs> everybody cards on the table, everyone. I wanted to show what Vivaldi's opera sounded like, right? Right. But that is not my favourite kind of opera right Same. there. Yeah. Um, and actually, although I can appreciate that it's very difficult to sing. Mm. All of her, oh, like, Whoa! It's like, what? But it's too much for me. I feel like it's. And I feel a bit stressed out listening to I that. I feel a bit stressed out too. It's, but, but 
well done, Vivaldi. Like, and, and, and I know that, yeah, he's he at the time that was perfect and that was wonderful mm, and mm. it was clearly very popular. And, and no doubt some of you would have just listened to that and been like, sick, I'm a, oh yeah, like, woo. Um, what I would say is like, personally, I don't enjoy Vivaldi's like backlog of operas. I wouldn't necessarily sure. suggest you go out and listen to them <laughs> if you're not really a fan of classical music that much already it's not what i would suggest as like a like a if you're a baroque opera specialist though knock yourself out um but yeah so but i hope you can understand now that he did have a kind of different body of the duality of vivaldi duality um foodality (laughs) stop but point being um i hope you enjoyed it and what i would suggest is actually just go and listen to a bunch of his his concertos they're amazing and fair enough they're all a little bit similar but yeah so uh, let us know how you get on with that and tell me if you loved that piece as well yeah uh, well you convince be, us that we're wrong please please, please go ahead uh, but yeah there we go coming soon but also right now that classical podcast that was our episode on Vivaldi and Purcell guys thank Woo-hoo. you so much for listening nice uh, if you want to get in touch with us there are multiple ways you can so do many. so kelly take us through them <laughs> it's my time to shine uh right instagram have you got it we're on it that classical insta twitter how about this at that classical <laughs> emailing love it that classical email at gmail.com very good and also we're on facebook and now brand new from because a few of you did suggest um making a little playlist of all the pieces we've we've featured and i've done it i've done it haven't i so <laughs> gone and done i've it. only gone and done it so if you want to hear the pieces we played today the pieces we played last episode any of the pieces we've used go to spotify and type in that classical podcast and the, the playlist should come up if you don't know how to find it I'll put it all over social media. It's going to be fine. We're going to get through this together. And yeah, let us know if you've enjoyed the episode. Let us know who you'd like us to feature in future. And finally... The best way you can let us know you enjoyed the episode (laughs) is by going onto iTunes and leaving us a five-star review. It really helps us out in terms of boosting the podcast visibility. Hugely. And otherwise, we'll see you on the next one. All right, see ya. Bye. Bye.